Greetings, Real Talk Podcast listeners. It's your host, Matt Munoz. In this episode, I'll be joined by veteran musician, artist, and activist Quetzal Flores of the iconic LA band Quetzal. This is another of those long overdue interviews I've been waiting to have for a number of reasons. Flashback. If you recall, the LA streets were still hot for years after rising from the ashes of the 1992 riots. But even in the midst of that chaos, there was another kind of warmth simmering among the people. A familiar warmth of similar to the 80s punk rock movement in LA. In response, young bands like Quetzal and other groups and collectives from neighboring brown and black communities were sprouting up across the city, freely incorporating every kind of musical fusion you can imagine. Latin with funk, with punk, jazz, hip hop, but often more traditional folk sounds like Son Jarocho from the state of Veracruz in Mexico, mixed with Caribbean styles could also be found weaved in. LA bands like Los Lobos, The Plugs, and singer Alice Bag had already lit that spark in the 80s, but the next wave was about to arrive. Quetzal was a fiery, energetic musical force when they arrived in the 90s. If you were there, you'll remember it well like I did, even as a semi-regular to LA clubs and warehouse shows, playing gigs at every hour of the day and night. It was an all-inclusive, multicultural party, music, crazy art scene where long-lasting friendships and collaborations were forged. As you're about to discover, Quetzal Flores is a historian himself, and like the many mentors who helped guide his journey, he's also a great storyteller and teacher who was very generous with his time and knowledge on a number of subjects. Not to be outdone, Quetzal band vocalist and powerhouse feminista Marta Gonzalez, also the life partner of Quetzal Flores, will get her well-deserved flowers as well. We'll be covering a lot of ground along with music pulled from the band's amazing body of work, and of course, a few random sidebar conversations linking our worlds together. The band Quetzal is currently celebrating their 30th anniversary of making music and uplifting the people in the City of Angels, and you're all invited to the official Fandango on August 19, 2023 at La Plaza de Cultura y Artes in downtown LA. So you should make plans to be there. More on that later. Right now, let's meet Quetzal Flores here on the Real Talk Podcast. Hello. Hello, Quetzal. Yes. Hi, Quetzal. Matt Munoz over here in Bakersfield. Hey, Matt. How you doing? Very, very good. Thank you for being available. I was like, I haven't been having very good luck with artists I've been trying to interview lately. And I'm like, maybe they're in solidarity with the writer's strike. Maybe there's some sort of connection, but uh, <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but I'm glad you're here. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. Yes, I'm here. And Excellent. also in, also in solidarity with the writers. Yeah. But I'm here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm surprised we have never crossed paths after all these years because my band used to spend a lot of time in LA, kind uh -huh. of in the same circuit in the 90s. You know, we we're doing the Latin traditional ska stuff. So we'd go to like Montebello and we'd play at Luna Park and do a lot of the same type of Chicano art show scene. But yours was a name, the band name was something that we we heard everywhere we went. Uh -huh. And so it's nice to f actually finally hear your voice and, and to talk to you, because I feel like you're a band leader, I'm a band leader. We, our bands kind of came up at the same time. We're all the way over here in the Central Valley. Two different types of music, although we're both Chicanos making our way through in the music that we do and, and the activism and the stuff that we believe in. So I'm really excited to talk to you about a lot of different things. I interviewed- well, wait, Real quick, what, yes. what was the name of your band? Uh, Mento Buru. Oh, okay. Yes, of course. Yeah, I, we used to go to L.A. all the time. We used to do... Yeah. I don't know if you remember a lot. Of, you remember a guy named Eddie Ayala? I remember you guys from those days, yes, when he used to do the Cafe Calientes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, we used to go over there all the time, and that's how we met. We met yeah. everybody. I mean, 
Yeah, uh, yeah, I remember your band. Oh, cool. I've kept tabs on what you guys have been doing. The name Quetzal has been synonymous with like, I mean, all the way from the 90s. And, you know, people talk about the history of the group. But I was like, well, I was there. So when I think about the band, I think of you guys in a different way than a lot of people who are still discovering. I mean, there's a lot of history. You guys have broken a lot of ground. Let me jump into this interview because we're going to cover a lot of ground here. Let's do it. I interviewed John Doe from X. I've interviewed him a couple times because he actually lived over here in Oildale for a while. When we talked about the 80s punk scene and all the history, uh, yeah. you know, he said one of the underlying message was that, you know, he goes, a struggle brings people together. Sure. Um, Ellie in the 90s, in comparison to 2023, are two different cities. Some similarities, yep. but I mean, there's a lot of differences. Let's go back to the beginning and what you remember the most about the 90s <laughs> and deciding to form a band like Quetzal. Sure. I mean, I think if we're going to talk about the 90s, we have to go back to the 80s <laughs> because everything that happened in the 80s resulted in, or we, we got to really see the impacts in the 90s, okay? So everything from the decimation of arts programming in public schools in community spaces in general uh, and like the government literally abandoning this and these are the Reagan era cuts and, you know, all those things to the wars in Central America and the influx of Central American people and the ongoing sort of disinvestment in communities, right? And then there's always you sprinkle, not even sprinkle, you pour a, like a healthy sauce of, of uh, anti-immigrant sentiment and pitting immigrant people against black and other working class people. And then this is, this is LA in the 90s, right? But also to go back to what John Doe said, that's the struggle brings people together right and so yes there was there was a lot of division there was a lot of fracturing of uh relationships in communities but there was also a lot of convergence and a desire for people to to remain connected and to build and rebuild and reimagine and so i feel like this is the nexus where we were born as a band right and the physical or geographical location of our emergence is this tiny cafe on the outskirts of Little Tokyo, like right at the edge, Alameda and First Street. Historically, a space of convergence of different cultures, particularly, you know, the Tama Cafe was there before that and everything that was happening there. To then, you know, Troy Cafe, who a former, you know, like, you know, Asco uh, participant, Shankarillo, and and uh, his partner, Bibi, and, you know, this whole vision of, of creating this this sort of cultural space disguised as a cafe, cultural and political space, because this is the first time that I heard about like recycling money, for example. This is where I got to meet Alice Bag and Teresa Guarrubias and, and all of these, and Eddie Ayala as well, and all these sort of like people of legend in the trajectory of music that, you know, we call Chicano music, right? It's not a genre as much as it is a, an experience, an embedded understanding of the multiple ways in which we express ourselves, which we articulate our lived reality as people. And sometimes it is a bunch of different things all at once. And so, so it's all those things, you know, happening. Uh, 187, Proposition 187 was, you know, was right there. The LA Rebellion, people again, finally saying enough is enough and just like tearing the shit down or at least trying to, right? Uh, the LAPD and the history of, of their <clears throat> violence and, and um, maintaining a of the, of the status quo and maintaining of the 
sort of safety of wealth and wealthy people, right? Also, the I say the decimation of of labor unions, right? Intentionally by Reagan and everybody feeling the effects of that. Pe- people losing their jobs left and right, or suddenly a job that uh, where a parent one parent could work a job, let's say in a machine shop, and it's unionized, and they have health insurance for all their kids, and they make enough to send their kids to school. And school wasn't that expensive then. And like on and on and on, there's all these different things that, that were gained from the 60s through the 70s that then the 80s we start to see disappear. So we get to the 90s and like it's fucking mayhem. And so people needed to respond in this way. And so there we are, you know, these young kids and we're born out of this moment. And we have the tool of music to support the self-defense and the vision of of self-determination of a people, of a community, of multiple multiple communities interconnected. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Let me kind of come into like a little bit about the identity and developing the music, but I do want to come back to the philosophy behind yeah. the band. Yeah, yeah let's so, do it. Okay, Latinos, Chicanos, or however people choose to identify themselves. When you hang out with the various communities, I'm sure in LA it's much more than Bakersfield because we're here it's a very conservative, you know, it's a blue collar city, but we are Chicanos here. I'm from McFarland. I go even yep. you know farther up north. But you know, depending on where you're at, the communities become very territorial and critical about music and art and history with any sort of that it has any sort of deep historical relation. Okay, now the sounds yep. of Son Jarocho, obviously from Veracruz, it's heard yep. a lot more now. And there's resources and communities for musicians to learn the style of music, as you're mentioning kind of the history. Being one of the first in the modern waves of groups to present this music, or at least as far as I knew, you can correct me if I'm wrong, did you have to deal with the, were there gatekeepers of this style of music, which I'm sure there were, but what was going on? Like, I'm going to do Son Jarocho music to young people, you know, because I'm over here in Bakersfield, so we know what we know. So that's what we yeah. discovered a lot of things when we would spend time in L.A. Were there gatekeepers keeping you from developing this music or how did that happen? Yeah. So Son Jarocho has always been a part of Chicano music. You know, um, they're the lowest hanging fruit is Richie Valens recording La Bamba, right? That's a song. And so uh, and then we can move forward to Los Lobos and, you know, even Tito's band, Tito La Riva's uh, punk band. Uh, uh, the Plugs. The Plugs recording yeah. La Bamba also, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it can be seen throughout. I, I saw this recording or not a recording, but a video recently of Santana, Steve, Esteban Jordan and Jerry Garcia playing El Cascabel. And so like there's there's this whole history of, of this this tradition sort of weaving in and out of our culture and, and our, our musical expression. And Los Lobos did an amazing job of really like grabbing onto this music and, and doing wonderful things with it, really creative things with it, you know. And if I, when, I, when I mention Los Lobos, I'm also talking about uh, Francisco Gonzalez, who was you know, one of the, the uh, sort of original members who left mm-hmm. early. But... Yeah, I should have rem- remembered, of course, Los Lobos, you know, their role in all this is, obvious, is, is very obvious. So for me, listening to the La Pistola del Corazón album or just another band from East L.A. album, you know, it was very, it was almost like, oh, and then hearing the other albums, hearing Kiko and hearing like these other albums, I was like, oh, I get it. So in order for us to be able to hybridize the music, we have to know the music first. And so I was really lucky that there weren't gatekeepers. What there was, was people that were very generous with information. And one person in particular, his name is Lorenzo Martinez, a.k.a. Lencho. And Lorenzo Martinez, who now plays with Los Texmaniacs, he plays drums with Los Texmaniacs. He's, he's played drums with Flaco. Like, he's this 
monumental resource in our community, a fountain of knowledge in many traditions. And he's the one that at the beginning of the band, like a couple years in, he was like, he was like, hey, Flaco, it's like, you, you know, it's cool that you like that rock shit, but um, you got to learn your tradition, you know, you got to learn your traditional music. And so I was like, all right, well, you know, he put a harana in my hands. He's like, here you go. This is called a harana. And I was like, oh, I know, I know this instrument. Like I've seen it. I've seen the Herreras play it. I've seen, you know, there's a lot of people that, that, that I had seen play. I just didn't know how to play it. And he really started me off. And, and I, I mentioned this recently to, to a colleague. I was like, you know, that moment transported me into an entirely different universe. That instrument was magic. Like the, just the first strum, I was like, what is this? And the things that I had been missing, I felt like that I was searching for musically suddenly became very apparent and accessible. And so Lorenzo taught me how to play harana. He taught me how to play bajo sexto. He taught me so much about traditional music. He taught me how to play boleros and so on and so forth. And so this dude was the resource. And he would just tell me, like, I, I'm never going to charge you. He's like, I'm going to tell you what my teachers told me. Once I give you information, don't come back asking the same questions. <laughs> Do your job, right? And then yeah. you need to share this with people. And so for me, that was that was powerful. That mm. was, and it was absolutely like, and it also put me to task. It put me in the position of accountability. Uh, well, and when not, did when did that music click with you? That that's the music you want to see? Because were you were you like an '80s kid like I am? Yeah. Oh, dude. Like yeah. I grew up, I grew up listening to the Smiths, REM, The Cure. You know, like that. Yeah. That was my joy. That mm -hmm. like those guitar bands, like the Stone Roses, a little bit later, right? But like, you know. I was really into guitar-driven music, particularly from Manchester, because, you know, and I could relate as, like, a working-class kid who who grew up with parents who were Marxist-Leninist and, like, you know, super radical and, like, all this stuff. And so, like, hearing, you know, those lyrics before Morrissey became, a, a you know, a complete fool, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, he was saying really important stuff, like, uh, you know, like, you know, a tough kid who sometimes swallows nails, raised on prisoner's aid. He killed a policeman when he was 13. Somehow that really impressed me. Stuff like that. I was like, yeah. why? What? What did he just say? Or I decreed today that life is simply taking and not giving. England is mine. It owes me a living. Right? Yeah. Or or shoplifters, <laughs> shoplifters of the world unite, you know? Like, yeah. You know, I mm -hmm. fucking love it. I mm -hmm. loved it. I was like, I was so into it. And I was like, this is the joint. And then REM too, you know, these, these, these hicks from, from uh, Athens, Georgia, who just were laying it out. They were just like amazing musically. And just like, you know, the lyrics were powerful and I could totally relate, you know, to all these bands. And so that's what I was growing up with. And then my mom, my mom was like heavy, heavy Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind & Fire, War, Tower of Power. Like those were the bands that like, I would sit there and, and like like read through the lyrics of an album, you know, like uh, I remember when she got um, Earth, Wind & Fire's All in All, and they had taken a trip to Egypt, and, you know, there was all those pictures inside of them at Egypt, and I was like, I get it. Like, I got it. I got the Afrofuturism. I got, like, these radical imaginations, as Robin Kelly would, would call them, right? Robin D.G. Kelly. Uh, I got the radical imagination, and it 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 helped to like keep me there to keep me in in the the position of what is possible and so when i get son when the harana comes into play but wait like it was were you what about the the chicano stuff that was going on like el chicano and malo and all that stuff was that coming in or were you just it was coming in because i i, 
I grew up in like two blocks from Lincoln Park, and every year there was the Cinco de Mayo festival there, mm -hmm. and that's who would play. Oh, okay. Malo, El Chicano, I think Warm played one year. You know, the, all the, those bands. You know, Tierra played. Their, Tierra lived two blocks from. I grew up with their kids. Oh. <laughs> you know, so I, I also heard that that music. You know, and, yeah. and so you got it all. So you were you were absorbing all of this as a as a teenager, and then son, then then Son Jarocho comes into your life. Well, it's it's been in your life, but it becomes more prominent, and then you you were you were leading into your next story. Please. And I should say that I, I have to give you a sort of like side note. Okay, my parents are from Oxnard, mm. and and there were three families in the projects in Oxnard that shared one patio. It was the Valdez family. That was my mom's family. The Flores family, that was my dad's family. And the Herreras, which are the family that learned how to play Son Jarocho. And so growing up, whenever there was a funeral or a wedding, they would play. The Herreras would play. And it's, it's Fermin and his whole family, right? And even his kids were playing very young. Este, Shokoyosin uh, and uh, Moctezuma, Shilone, and like all those kids. And so I, I had seen the music a lot. Like, and, and I knew people who could play really well. Right. And so that's when this starts coming in to play. And like I said, Lencho gave me Harana and I did not look back. I was like, I was <laughs> so, on it. But OK, so finding the right musicians like you're how old were you when when you were about to form Quetzal, when this is really starting to resonate with you? We're like, I'm going to form yeah. a band. So when I formed the band, I was 20 years old. Besides just, you know, other people digging the music like you like, yeah, I dig this music and, you know, kind of coming to my identity as a young adult, you know, I'm 20, I'm going to about to be 21, developing your beliefs and everything like that. And the, the person that you're going to be into the present, was it easy to find other musicians that were going yeah. to be into this as well? Check this out. So I have this cousin <laughs> who's an amazing violinist and she's on a bunch of the albums. Her name is Rocio Marron. Mm -hmm. Yes. And she is a beast. Like she is, an amazing, amazing violinist. And she was an amazing violinist then. So I was like, you know, I want to play music with my cousin. And we played music together, but like, you know, uh, socially. But I wanted to play in a band with her, right? I wanted that violin to be the lead instrument. That was the vision. And the other thing was, okay, back to my parents and the movement and the organization they were in. Uh, it's called the League of Revolutionary Struggle. And that organization, there was this kid in that organization named Maceo Hernandez. Okay, he was a little older than me. He's my brother's friend. But we interacted a lot. And so he went to Japan when he was 13 and studied taiko music till he was 21 and had a, mm -hmm. uh, like a tragic injury. There's actually a documentary mm -hmm. about him called The Demon Drummer from East L.A. And he, he joined a, a, like a major group called Ondekoza. And he was touring the world with them. And then he had this tragic accident. He lost a leg. And so he could not maintain the rigor of the training. And they, they were like the group that would go run a marathon and yeah. then play at the end of the marathon. <laughs> Like play a concert. They were incredibly fit. And so he just couldn't keep up anymore, right? He did run two marathons with one leg, which he's psycho, right? And so this dude is awesome. And he was in a great, he was a great taiko drummer. And he learned that tradition, spoke Japanese, you know, and this Chicano, like this straight up Chicano dude from, from the east side. So he came back and he was hanging out with my brother one day. And I happened to show up after they had come back from having lunch at my mom's house. And he was like, hey, I heard you play music and blah, blah, blah. And I had already had a band called Aslan before this. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And the band had broken up. And I was like, I'm actually in between bands right now. I'm trying to start a new project. What, what like, did Aslan play? What kind of music? Aslan played like rock, like, like, like very, it, I, I would call it art rock. 
you can find, I, I actually post stuff on, on YouTube. You can find Aslana Troy Cafe. You'll, you'll see a number of songs. It was a really fun band, but you know, it had its time and it yeah. ended. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was forming this other thing. And so he was like, let's do it. Let's put a band together. And he had, like I said, he had just moved back from Japan. So that was the other piece. And it was like, okay, we started as like a group that had taiko drums, this Chicano dude playing taiko, this Chicana playing violin, and this dude playing electric guitar. The harana wasn't even a, a thing yet. And then it was just kind of, you know, after that, building upon that. And so we had the... What was the, the foundation of the, of, the, of the group, the first Quetzal? Yeah, so there's this friend of mine named Michelle Sigueros, who um, I went to middle school with. I went to visit her at Pitzer College in Pomona, and uh, she had another friend named Lilia Hernandez, who just so happened I had gone to elementary school with at Gate Street Elementary in, in Lincoln Heights, who grew up in Lincoln Heights too. And so, and she liked to sing. And so she was the first singer of the band. There, during the Aslan days, there was another band called Boca de Sandia, and the drummer and bass player for Boca de Sandia were, were really good. I wanted to work with them. And so that first manifestation, there were other people that played, but the first real manifestation of the band was E. Anthony Martinez on drums, Robert Guerrero on bass, uh, Lilia Hernandez on vocals, Marcel Hernandez on taiko, and he played some congas too, mm -hmm. Rocio, Marrón on violin, and myself playing electric guitar. Were you guys going strictly traditional right away, or was it something that developed? No, we played, so Saborami was one of the songs we played. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's as traditional as we yeah. got. Did you play it but, more, uh, did you play it like a, like a Chicano band would, would have played it? Because there's, there's, there's Chicano yeah, style. Totally. And... <laughs> oh yeah, totally. One time, one of my guitar teachers was like, you made that up, right? <laughs> 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 so yeah so, well, you got to know the but, standards man you got to start with the standards it, to know where you're going oh uh, yeah i i relearned it later correctly so so yeah so then that was the early manifestation of the band and then how long did it take till you guys started gigging right away because aslan already played at troy cafe did you guys and, do like a farewell like we're now we're now Quetzal? No, it was like just our last gig was you know somewhere else random and then that was it nobody wanted to play together anymore and so what happened was you know, we had access to the space. There was trust. We had an audience already that, that would patronize uh, our gigs. And, and so uh, we started to just play as Quetzal. And, and actually, there, there's actual footage of that first manifestation on YouTube as well, if you look up Quetzal at Troy. I want to start talking about how the band, when the band really started to get a name, the 90s, the trips to L.A., meeting people started first we started with the ska movement and then eventually we started to leading into all the bands that played at luna park pre-ozo uh very be careful all those groups yeah. most of the time we never even told the club owners we were from bakersfield because they wouldn't book us and then we say we kind of we kind of have a similar sound we play a couple cha-chas and you know and then that's where we started to learn everything but 90s yeah. the clubs like luna park there was temple bar Fay dodo the underground Chicano art shows of the time where it was like a fertile ground for the nurturing, the artists and the activists, everybody who yeah. wanted to get into the scene was welcome. And, and, and everybody that we, we met back then that became friends with, we're still friends with to this day. I, I still talk to everybody. Like if Yuli, uh, from Yuli Bay, was on the, I call him right now. It, we haven't, maybe we hadn't talked for about a year and a half. It'd be like, I just saw him yesterday. So that's what the one thing I love about that. When you talk about struggle bringing together, that whole 90s scene was was great. That's why I'm like, why didn't I ever cross paths with Quetzal? Like I've seen like, you're the only cat I never crossed paths with. But I, although I knew, I felt like I knew you. Now the group forming, getting popular, people talking about it. Did you guys ever feel pressure to be the voice of the new movement? Because it seems like everybody started with Quetzal. 
like you talk about this new movement, these Latino bands, everybody was talking about how like you guys were very revered. I don't know if you knew this, but you guys were pretty revered, especially for the young bands at the time. And like I said, us looking from the outside, looking in, we didn't know you as well. However, you guys were a band that was like synonymous with the L.A. Chicano music youth scene. Yeah. Did you guys ever feel pressure to, to be that voice? No, no, not at all. We felt a great sense of accompaniment with the other bands, um, with the Blues Experiment, with yeah. Olin, <laughs> with Quinto Sol, with uh, Osomatli. Like, there were so many amazing... Oh, Yeska was another one. There were so many amazing groups it was so fun. during that time. It was so and it was, just, fun. it was alive. And there was so much support. Like, there was so much intention to support each other and to see each other flourish, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and it's still like that. Like, as you mentioned, those relationships are still intact. And so, like, same here. Like, you know, we love each other. We, we, I'm actually doing a, an atelier, a print series with self-help graphics about the 90s music scene here in LA. And so I'm pulling on all these artists that were around during that time and also musicians and pairing them up. The artists are creating a, a print, like a visual piece. Yeah. And then the musicians are creating a song around that, whatever they discuss. And then I'm, I'm recording the song. And so then the, there's going to be a whole thing at the Vincent Price Art Museum uh, here at uh, East LA College mm-hmm. in, in the spring. There'll be a release and there's going to be concerts and panels and all kinds of stuff. It's going to be super fun. But yeah, the relationships are very much intact. And I, we never felt that type of pressure. There were different pressures that we felt, right? Uh, but like, you know, what we, were they? What were they? Yeah, like we felt we felt pressured to, to grow the all business. the time. <laughs> No, just to grow the business of the band, you know, get out beyond L.A. or California and to tour and to do all these things. Right. And that turned out to be, you know, really informative, but also um, something that we at some point decided that, mm, you know, this is not exactly in line with our values of, uh, you know, who we are and, and how we see the function of music in community. What does it mean to you guys to be here today? Well, it's really special. You know, we've had a, a many years. Um, we've been playing music for many years. We're been about we're like a 20-year-old band, and we're still at it because we love it. And uh, this is a great surprise. So, what, where were you when you found out? I was in bed. Should I tell you what I was doing? Yeah. Uh, no, that's you don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that. Well, we'll, I'll just leave that part out of it. But then we had to stop and just, you know, kind of congratulate each other in other ways.
got to talk about Martha Gonzalez. Uh-huh. She's yeah. she's obviously a very huge part of this group. Um, she's time. also she's also your spouse, your wife, your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, and she's a very important figure. How's she doing right now? She's doing amazing. You know, she's like super like classic overachiever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The thread uh, that keeps everything together, right? Yeah, she's you know, she does her she does her thing. She's you know, she's writing a lot. She like, you know, like articles and, and you know, her she's starting to think about her next book and she just got the MacArthur. You know, there's all these things happening uh, constantly for her. She's working on this play with uh, Virginia uh, Grice. Yeah, it's never a dull moment in this home. Now yeah. we got a kid we got a kid who's about to go to UCLA, Ooh, ethnomusicology. Nice. He's like I don't know if you can hear the music in the background, but he's always doing music. Like he's constant. What's he into? And, uh, What's he into? He's an he's an amazing uh, requinto jarocho player, mm. and uh, he's a great piano player. He's a great singer. He's a great flautist. Like he can play a lot of different things in a lot of different genres. He loves jazz music a lot. He loves like neo soul, and uh, he loves uh, Afrobeat, like the new Afrobeat stuff. Oh, yeah. He loves. A lot of types of Cuban music, particularly like rumba stuff, the spiritual religious music, like with batas and cantos and stuff like that. Like he he goes in, he just goes in, and he he's a great lover and student of music in general. And anywhere we go around the world, he finds a way to connect and to like and to contribute as well. You know? oh, so that's he, amazing. That's beautiful, man. He's, he's like a whole other level of of musician. Like I, I, you know, I'm not even trying to mess with him. Yeah, <laughs> I know the kids. But, but, well, they know, get you know they have Marta, a teacher like his yeah. parents are kind of like opening the windows, opening these doors for him to just kind of like here go explore and and hopefully he passes that on and it just continues yeah. to get bigger and the doors get bigger and bigger each time they open up for these kids to just absorb everything like a sponge as they do in these prime yeah. years. Yeah, but you know back, back to Martha and like, you know, in 95 she joins the band. Um this is 2 years in. Uh everybody had left except for my cousin Rocio and I Were you I guys married to... yet or were you guys t- No, I didn't even know her. Oh, okay. I I met her I met her through the band. So I meet Marta, and then uh, at the same time, I meet this bass player named Dante Pascuso. And uh, and then Dante introduces me to, to a drummer named Danilo. And then Marta brings her brother in. And then I pulled on a um, an old friend from, from high school, uh, Gabriel Tenorio. And that's the first band, the first group, uh, the first recording, first album. And that's and the self, so, is it self-titled? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, so so Martha's like when she comes in, as far as her role in the original role in the band, was it to be a vocalist? Was it to be, you know, the front person? She thought she was gonna be background vocalist. And so and it's so funny because I have a friend named McKay Garner. We call him Big Daddy. He's up in the Bay Area now. Um he's a he's a really great drummer and a great a musician he's also a great studio engineer and that's what he's doing mostly right now i was on the phone with him and i was like hey i got this new singer you know check it out and i had recorded some of the the, the rehearsals and i played it for him he's like oh, wait a minute stop he's like short mexican girl you know big cheeks 
I was like, <laughs> yeah. He's like, dude. He's like, I saw her playing with the Toledo show, this this other act. In yeah. Town, right? He's like, he's like, she was singing backgrounds, but that's all I wanted to hear. I just wanted to hear her sing. He's like, I know exactly who she is. And so Martha had been singing backgrounds with different groups. And so she thought I was calling her to do background vocals. And she had seen the band before. And she, you know, she, she didn't realize there was no more lead singer. The lead singer had left to go to grad school. And so she, when she got in, it was like, no, I want you to sing lead. And so, you know, we were, we just kind of reviewed some boleros and stuff. And by this time I had, had, I had already started picking up the harana and learning traditional music in this way. Right. And so we really connected via traditional music and then also like, crafting the sound of the band because it it already had something established in the scene we had created with the first singer Mm -hmm. and people i I would hear people all the time at first saying i like the old singer better right of course right people get used to it or whatever (laughs) but i was like ah you guys don't know (laughs) you just don't know like this this singer's a beast and so marta you know came in and just right away she was just clear that she was a force, a tremendous force vocally. And, and then, you know, slowly but surely, like creatively, she started to get really comfortable and then just started like putting her stamp on the music. Uh, and that was, I think that was the moment where like things really started clicking and shifting. And then Dante, having Dante, I have to talk about Dante because Dante came from the same school that Marta came from, the LA County High School for the Arts, but later, like four years later. And Dante was this, award-winning bass player who was going around the country squashing all these bass players under 18 uh at these jazz competitions <laughs> and he's incredible and so like the, the sense if you listen to the first couple albums like three albums the sense of harmony the sense of like he that was all his like heavily influenced by him and this is where we started to learn about like all these different things musically right um, and, and to support each other, he also got a lot from us learning traditional music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's he's still in that circuit. He still plays, like, Son de Madera from Veracruz still calls on him. He plays with Ricardo Lembo and Máquina Loca. Like, he, he plays with all kinds. He's on all kinds of stuff. And Monster. Just a, yeah, <laughs> excellent, excellent musician. An incredible soloist. I remember one time we were in... Uh, in uh, Mexico at this place. It's a punk club, actually. <laughs> Foro Alicia, Multi uh-huh. Foro Alicia. And at the Foro Alicia, like, you know, notoriously people are getting, like, booed off stage and shit thrown at them or whatever. And we're at this Chicano band from East LA. And we go there and we go, like, we used to play Cascavel, all rocked out, right? And he takes this, like, broke and the drums were playing and he would just take this solo in the middle, right? And these punk guys were losing their minds, <laughs> like, like, spitting on themselves, like, as they're screaming for him, right? And there's a video somewhere of it, but it's such a, a, a great moment and uh, and just so affirming in so many ways, right? What bass players was he gravitated? Was he like a Jocko guy? Was he a Cachao guy? Like, was, was what kind of bassist would you say he gravitated he, to? He was, when we first met him, he was definitely a Jocko guy. Uh-huh. Like, this guy, okay, so he actually won a competition where he got to record an album with Alex Acuna, the drummer, he was a Weather Report drummer as well. So basically, he got to record an album with different members of Weather Report. You know, Jocko comes from that. And so, like, it was this incredible thing. And, like, he's just this really special dude. And so humble and so, like, like really mild-mannered, beautiful, but, like, an incredible, incredible musician. And part of the sound of the band from the get-go. Just like, wow. Drummer, Weather Report. Peter Erskine? Omar yes. Hakim. Oh, Peter Erskine. Okay. Yeah. Monster. Okay, so he was very well versed. 
absorbing everything like that. Which you know, have you ever seen that documentary that uh, Jaco Pastorius one? Yeah, where they did yeah, yeah. the yeah the one with the uh, uh, Fanny All Stars and and uh, the the. The, the Puerto Ricans against the Cubans. That's what I'm talking about. Like when, when I mentioned the whole gatekeeping thing, when it comes to Latinos, and I think, you know, any sort of quote, quote, ethnic music, or any sort of his, that has really strong historical ties where people are very proud of the, the, the traditions that they've kind of given the world. When it comes to Latin music, especially, I mean, it, of course, the clave's got to be perfect, but then everything else oh, has yeah. got to get better and better and better. Well, okay. That's a whole nother conversation around <laughs> yeah. Son Sonjarocho because... I have to say, the son jarocho that I started learning was markedly different from the son that we learned later on. So, okay, Mexico during the 40s, 50s, and 60s underwent this whole modernity project. And they created these versions of traditional culture for export, for the purpose of showing that Mexico was moving into the first world economy and was worthy of it and was civilized. And you got to remember, Mexico had been through two revolutions in 100 years and a bunch of other shit in between, right? And so they were trying to do this thing. And this is where like the whole mestizo, the mestizaje comes out of and like, you know, and so la raza cosmica, like all that stuff, right? And so do the bale folcloricos. What we now know as mariachi comes out of that moment. And then what we were made to believe that Son Jarocho was only. And this was all via industry. So the exports were what we got here in the U.S. One of my mentors, another mentor from, from Northern California, his name is Russell Rodriguez. I don't know if you've ever met Russell. He's a professor at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, he's an incredible musician as well. He used to have a band called Los Otros. He gave me an album. He's like, I think you would like this. And he said, here, this is Son de Madera from, from Veracruz. And I put that first record on and I was like, what the hell is going on here? Like, why do these jaranas sound like that? What ha where are the verses like right? Like, I'm not hearing any of that business. Mm -hmm. I'm not hearing any of the, like, the lyrics that are sexist or, like, you know, sort of, like, just... Dark yeah, any kind of derogatory, derogatory in any way. Yeah, exactly. I'm hearing, like, deep, deep poetry, and that's, that's it's going really deep. And some of this is about land and loss and, and you know, liberation, and like, all these things. And, like, I start to see... and in love for sure, right? But but like I start to see all these connections. And so he started teaching me this style of, of Son Jarocho that a group from Veracruz called Mono Blanco had sort of recuperated from the clutches of modernity, right? And so what happened was you had this export fabricated thing that was being put in front of everybody, right? And saying, this is the actual culture. And then with the onset of like television and all these things, like, you know, you, these things have impact. And so a lot of people from the countryside were no longer looking at the way that they were playing as maybe um, valid or even worth the trouble. And particularly the fiesta comunitaria, which was the fandango. They were no, they were no longer investing in that. It was all about playing like the dudes on the movies <laughs> because that's the only way you could get work. Yeah. And so you start to see, you know, like, and then there was also a lot of, of 
people having to leave the countryside to go to the city to work, whether it was Mexico City or whether it was like, you know, the U.S. And so there was these guys in the 70s that formed a group called Mono Blanco, and they did this project and they basically brought not only the way of playing back, but the way of celebrating collectively and democratizing access to this music, right? Talking about gatekeepers, this is like the antithesis of gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. And so we started to learn about this style and started to build relationships. And so if you listen to the, to like a song like Planta de los Pies on the third album on work, on work songs, that's the story. Like we're talking about the intercambio. We're talking about the exchange that's happening. This was early on in the exchange. And so we're actually, you know, detailing out like the different things or a song like um, Todo lo que tengo that's on Imaginaries. It's, throwing a conversation back at them because there's a song Mono Blanco has called El Mundo Se Va a Acabar. And the first lyric uh, in, in Todo Lo Que Tengo is, Dicen que el mundo se acerca su fin, right? And so, like, there's this whole dialogue going on where we, we you know, we're really weaving, engaging, and, and then we started going down there every year and participating in the fandangos. We transplanted the fandango back here. Like, the, the reason why there's so much access now to instruments and, and teachers and, you know, the actual practice is because a bunch of us did a lot of work, you know, here in the Bay area, in Chicago, all these different places is people just started doing the work to, to make sure we were transplanting this jewel, which is the Fandango itself. So yes, like I said, there was never any gatekeepers for us. And if there were, we, we didn't interact with them. Yeah. (laughs) We didn't, we didn't really need to, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't the thing. Uh, we had access to other people. Same thing with the Zapatista movement. Like there were mm-hmm. gatekeepers, but we had our own relationships with them. We built the relationships directly with them. We did this amazing thing. So the, the whole art scene, because there was the music scene, but then there was the art scene, which was even bigger in East LA in the 90s. And we were all really, really inspired by the Zapatista movement and to varying degrees. Some of us were really into like, look at the methodology, look at the way that they're organizing. And like, we want to organize like that. And so we started organizing. And one of the things we did was we said, okay, well, we want to go down there and actually have time with them to talk about the things that we're experiencing, the things that they're experiencing. And so we started to organize for a year and went down there hundred and something of us went down there, a bunch of artists. And so I actually posted something on Instagram recently where you see Marta coming off of a, a collective songwriting workshop, actually performing the song that they had just written. And this is where we learned how to do collective songwriting. And I can, I can send you a bunch of videos of what we've done over the last 15, 20 years, whatever, in terms of collective songwriting. It's, it's this methodology that we really, really use a lot in community. And it's a way of bringing people into a conversation and into the work of music. And without having any musical experience, and we always hear that, like, oh, no soy musico. Like, I'm not sure. I'm not a musician. I don't really know. I'm like, no, no, no. The criteria here is not musical excellence in that technical way. The criteria here is depth of participation. If you have participated deeply, we are successful. So, yeah. So that was like, how do we get off the stage and use our skill set and still be in community with music, but just think beyond that version of music? And we can still do that. We can still jump on the stage and, and play. And that's part of like our labor, right? But we can also do these other things that are really important and that build in different ways, right? So that's, that's been amazing, our trajectory. Yeah. yeah, that's been our trajectory in general is <laughs> looking for those things. So the Fandango was another one of those things. We saw the Fandango, we were like, holy shit, look at 
that. Look at what's happening here. There's no stage. There's people participating. There's generations. There's little kids. There's old ladies. And this is going. And it goes all night long. And like, it was the most powerful and beautiful thing we had seen. And we were like, we want this in our, our community. We need this. Well, that's yeah. what we saw. I mean, the things that you guys were doing, like you, like I said, going to LA and seeing what was happening over there, we would make a point of bringing that over here to Bakersfield at our shows when we started playing less ska and more Latin music, we started mm -hmm. to invite more different types of crowds in to participate. And as the internet became more accessible to people, we didn't have to go and um, go find an LA Weekly to find out where what you guys were doing. Because that's that was kind of like one of our sources before everybody had Wi-Fi and, you know, and, and good internet was we'd pick up LA Weeklies on the, you know, or we go to like the Wacko Lose the Jesus and pick up all the indie political rags, art rags and bring them home and see if we remember on any of these names and maybe maybe in a month or so we might cross paths with them but we would never know what they sounded like because this is pre-streaming so if we didn't buy a tape or anything which brings me to like the first time i actually heard you guys i was in san francisco and i was playing with my friend's band he needed a, a sax player and i went to they were called uh, five degrees of soul they used to play oh, yeah. luna park and they were big fans of you guys and i remember we went to um we might have been to rasputin's or something like that we played at the elbow room and i said oh here's gets out i'm gonna buy the it was sing the reel and so and it was just after it was released i think it's because i had seen pictures of you guys circuit it's like a very neo-traditional very traditional i don't know what they sound like <laughs> So when I finally heard the album, I was like, well, this is a little bit different than what I was expecting. And the guys in the band said, yeah, this sounds a little bit, it's kind of a little bit of a different direction from what we're used to. And so... I would go buy what my friends and that was the only CD that I had access to at the time was just the sing the reel. And then as you <laughs> listen to it more, it kind of makes more sense. But now you can deep dive into the entire Quetzal musical entomology of Quetzal online. You can you can hear it all. So now, you know, years later, I mean, it all makes sense of everything that you guys were doing, you know. That was back in the 90s. Let's talk about like more of the present. You know, age usually has a profound effect on, on creative directions. You know, would you say you are going more traditional in recent years? Like, what's the direction of the band? Like I said, at that time, it was a little, I remember it was a little bit funky, but it was the sound of the time, the evolution of the Quetzal sound. Where do yeah. you feel like you guys are at right now? This is this 30 years later. So the evolution had to do also with like, with method and process at that time you know it was a different band from the first album mm -hmm. like that, a lot of that first album i had written 
And so there were a couple pieces that Marta and Dante contributed to, but like largely it was like my songs and then they were helping to grow them and realize them. The second album, Sing the Real, was... Okay, it was Ray Sandoval comes in as a guitar player now. Edson Genesi comes in as the percussionist, who is like a beautiful and thoughtful musician and human being. We had two violinists. We had Junior Ferri from Cuba, who, uh, you know, we met via CalArts. And we had my cousin Rocio on that album as well. And then Kiko replaced Danilo as the drummer. And so then there was, a, it was in largely a new band. But, you know, there's Marta, Dante, myself, and Marta's brother Gabriel that remain from, and Rocio from the first, you know, manifestation. So that sound really kind kind of was us saying it's not enough to think about democracy in movement spaces. We have to think about democracy in, in our musical spaces, in the everyday practice of music. And music is largely democratic in its nature. However, the business of music interrupts that democracy in the ways that it says who gets to write the songs, oh, he's the band leader, or that's the singer, and, you know, and then who gets to... Uh, and so then everyone started to contribute. And it was intentional. It was like, hey, we all need to contribute a song to this album. And so we started to be more intentional about, about those practices and, and getting really deep into those practices and how we, and how we create together. And, uh, and so that's why it sounds different, because everybody, everybody's, everybody had an opportunity to bring their voice to the forefront at different moments. What would you say for somebody that would be just being introduced to Quetzal, if you say, this is the record that best represents us before you start digging? I don't know. like, I, Or what I mean, song? I mean, you guys got a, a lot of great songs. And you were talking about La Planta de los Pies. There's, you know, yeah. the NPR Tiny Desk, which I love, and I've seen it a bunch of times, and then the, uh, the KCT. Artbound. Uh -huh. Yeah. Oh, that's a great Planta de los Pies. Great performance. They did you guys right. But like, what are what are some of the songs that you recommend to people out there that might be new to the to Quetzal? I can't say that I, I would <laughs> that just I start do that. digging, just jump in. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, every album is so different. You know, even from from seeing the real to work songs, it's the same personnel. It's just very different. Like, oh, and actually, there's there's Ray leaves for that album, and then I I was playing guitar uh, and the acoustic guitars as well. We were getting really deep into the style of Son Jarocho, like that I was talking about earlier. And so you start to hear it more in that album. You start to hear the jaranas sound different. They're lusher. They're more in the forefront. The requinto sounds different. Like, And then actually the, the guitar player from Son de Madera, the requinto player from Son de Madera, he plays on that album. Yeah, the lyrical content is always going to be representative of what's happening at that time, you know, in, in community in our experiences as musicians and so on and so forth. And so maybe I would say, okay, start with work songs, you know, and then you can work your way either way from there. Other direction is going to be different because after that we do Die Cowboy Die. That's like a little bit untethered just because we were pissed. We were pissed for a bunch of reasons, right? This is when we had just gotten off of our contract and we're just like, you know, fuck the industry. People had left the band. Dante left, Kiko left, Edson left. Gabriel left, Martha's brother. 
and we brought in Cesar Castro to play Requinto and Jarana, and then we brought in Leona, and we brought in um, Quincy McCrary to play keys and sing as well, who's like, he's such a monster. He's, he's, he's the guy who plays with Jack White. And Quincy was just this, I don't know if you remember a band called Burning Star. So Quincy was the keyboard player for that band, but he's this incredible musician. And so he joined the band and it was just, and then Andy, who used to play with Ozo, was on drums. And then Juan Perez came in on bass for that album. And then that was just like, just raw, untethered us just going in. And so like, it sounds very different. Imaginaries, you know, and each each one's different. The the latest one, like we actually traveled to Veracruz together as a band and hung out and played music for two weeks, and then we came back and we wrote an album. And it's very much influenced by the tradition. There's no drum set. It's all like acoustic instruments, jarocho instruments. There's all these interludes from that trip. It's really beautiful. It's, it's called Puente Sonoro. So that's the latest one. Like after that, actually, we released a song called uh, Justice Never Dies. And that was just like a single. We were in the studio and we we're just like, you know, here we got the song and we, we played it and we recorded it and released it. And that song is also more like, like an oldie, like doo-wop oldie, Chicano soul type thing, right? mushroom rise hold me while the flowers die kiss me as the rivers run dry I believe your lips are all I need I won't go thirsty I got off the phone with a mutual friend of ours, uh, Moises Baquero, known, <laughs> known him for many, many years, and he's come through town with all his bands, Los band and every, every group, the Ecno, I've known mm -hmm. him for many years. I actually met him back in 2003. I, I worked for Tomas Cookman for mm -hmm. one season for the LAMC when he was in LA, and it was like another chapter in my life where I met everybody, and a lot of those people, Pilar, Moises, we remain friends to this day because I was the stage manager for those showcases for the LAMC, and oh, even, wow. my Spanish was not even that good, so when I graduated in 2003 from CSUB, I moved to, to LA, I went to Tomas, and I said, hey, I want to get some experience, I love this rock and espanol thing that's going on, and, and he's all, sure, man, you come on over here. I was over there, you know, living on credit cards. I was meeting everybody but let, let me ask you this when you talk about divisions in the scene and like the rock and espanol scene and the and the chicano scene one thing i noticed by working with tomas who I'm, I'm still cool with today is that that scene and the and the musicians the group the acts that he is i mean because he comes from new york he comes from you know fabulosos cadillacs manu chow and managing some of those biggest kind of 
Latin alternative groups that everybody was just barely discovering here in the States, you know, 10, mm -hmm. 15 years later. The one thing I noticed was that like the Chicano scene, he was not big on bringing them into <clears throat> his world. There was, there was a line, you know, even when they, the one thing also that I noticed was when they did the showcases for the LAMC, and I had already, I had already spent many years there with, with Mento Buru and all that scene, the Chicano scene, but when I came back, it seems like that scene was not part of it. Like, I remember there was a band called East LA Sabor Factory who was super popular, mm -hmm. and I think they maybe mm -hmm. had done one of the smaller, smaller showcases, but it was the, mm -hmm. a lot of that scene was kind of, kind of not allowed in. Yeah. Yeah. What was up with that? Yeah. Well, this is this is not new. This is a I would say a condition of the industry. There's a book by Rudy Acuña called Anything But Mexican, and this reminds me of that. And so, <laughs> this is more like anything but Chicano. Like you know, if we think about movie stars, right? Who is a, a Chicano like like mega movie star? There's mm -hmm. not one. No. <laughs> you know, our, our biggest star is Eddie yeah. Olmos, right? You know, he's a star. He's a popular dude, but like he's not. J-Lo or he's not even like Jimmy yeah. Smith's or, you know, some, somebody got, like that, right? Like, he's them. not that. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. but I'm saying like these guys are Puerto Rican, yeah. they're they're Cuban, they're Venezuelan, they're anything but but like Chicano. Like we have Gael, we have Diego Luna and like, you know, guys like that. They're Mexican. And so then there's this thing in the industry where Chicanos just don't fit, you know, there's a ceiling for us. And, and that's okay in my opinion. Because I'm like, fuck the industry. Like, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Like, my, my success is not predicated on how many units I sell or how many tickets I sell and how many tickets I'm worth in the marketplace or any of that business, right? Like, I know it, but it's it's just irrelevant to me. Like, I'm doing so many things. I've learned how to continue to be relevant in the places I need to be relevant in and to have impact where I need to have impact. It's the same thing. It's like, it's the reason why those Lobos are not largely revered you know, it's like, yeah, in certain circles, mm -hmm. sure. And their whole thing was a fluke. Like that whole Lavamba yeah. thing was a fluke. It wasn't like, it was like, you know, this very intentional crafted thing. It was a gig and they recorded it for the movie and it blew up. And so good for them. It was an incredible And the music got better and better after that. I mean, it just continued oh to get God. better. Oh my God. They're just nuts. Like they're, like for me, like the three albums that Mitchell Froom produced, Kiko, mm -hmm. Colossal Head, and yeah. This Time, that to me is like, okay, there is no better recordings in Chicano music than that. None. There is not. There are good recordings here and there. As entire albums, those are the three best albums ever, like in the in the trajectory of Chicano music. They're so yeah. good. <laughs> so good. And their songwriting and the crafting of lyrics and the arrangements, everything is so damn good and then like in there too squished in there's are the the latin playboys yeah. albums right which are the offshoots and those things are just unbelievable and so like those are the those are like the bars you know that i i'm always trying to like get to it's kind of tradition here especially with a lot of the the, the bands around here, the young latino bands is well everybody's got to learn the kind of the the santana canon or like the those particular yeah. tunes it's like yeah, you yeah. know you guys can go yeah. if you guys want to learn some latin music you guys can take it a step further and start with los lobos and go deeper beyond la bamba if you really want to play cumbias and work play some of the los lobos cumbias start there and then you can always go back to play cumbia <laughs> the soul and all those songs but you could but you can start right there and it'll take you further it'll it'll expand your mind yeah and it'll be as hip as yeah. hip as fuck that, too you know and that's the other thing too is like you know what what did los lobos do after having success with la bamba they were getting all kinds of pressure to 
go commercial. So much pressure. And what did they do? They did La Pistola del yeah. Corazón, <laughs> <laughs> which was looked at as career suicide, right? Oh man, what a beautiful. But for them, they were they were they were also punk rock. They were part mm-hmm. of the punk scene, and they had those ethics. And they were also, you know, Chicanos, and like they also came out of the movement. Did Quetzal ever get paired up with an have an odd pairing? Because I've interviewed Louis Perez before, and and he told me the full story mm-hmm. about when I know yeah, what you're the, the say. PIL show. I know. What <laughs> yes, I knew it. I knew you were going to say mean, that. I, l- I heard love that story. that story, and I love the way he told it to me about all the theas and everybody said, crying backstage, and like he told it in detail and how excited, like it, oh, it, it, it sparked something in them. Like that, this, this Los Lobos is going to go yeah. another level after this. You know, David told me that story too, and he said that <laughs> that he was he was on stage, and that you know they were I forget what they were playing, but that he was playing electric guitar, and you know they were rocking out, and that this guy was standing in front, of this white dude was standing right in front, and that every time David would make eye contact with him, the guy would mouth to him, "Fuck you." <laughs> He's all, dude, I was all nervous because I'm all young, you know, this young kid. And I'm like looking, I'm like all shy and I'm looking around like, what the hell? And I look back at him again and he does it again. And he kept doing it the whole night or at least for their <laughs> set, you know. And, and I love, I love hearing Louis tell the story too because he, he, it's hilarious. And, and it's also, you know, like it's sad because, you know, the families were there. They were hurt by, you know, they were hurt by people throwing shit at them and spitting on them and, you know, cussing at them and everything. Has a situation ever like that ever happened for you? Because, yeah. Really? Please share. Yeah. So there was a, I don't know if you remember JC yeah. Fandango in mm-hmm. Santana. Okay. Well, we opened up for La Maldita Vecindad there. It was a rock and Espanol crowd. And, you know, talk about like this whole like tension between Mexicans and Chicanos, right? We get up there and they're just like, uh-uh, they weren't having it. They're like, these are Chicanos. These aren't Mexicans. <sighs> they start throwing shit at us. Like they threw gum that landed on Marta's tarima and her foot got <sighs> stuck on the gum. <laughs> and so Marta got fed up. And at some point, you know, some guys like, you know, like talking some shit. She's like, shut the fuck up. You dance like a goddamn fool. And like, you know, she's just like going mm-hmm. back and forth. And then people are like, people turn on him and start throwing shit at him. And it was just like a really raucous crowd. Right. And at some point we did a song called La Pesadilla, which is from Senorio, yeah. Right. And and it's all slow and mellow. And these are rockers. Like these people want to get in. Get rock, yeah. Right. And so then they're like screaming shit. And Marta has a middle finger up the whole time she's singing the song. And she's just like looking them straight in the face and like flipping them all off like in yeah. close range. And there was this group of women that were like so like inspired. They rushed to the front. And they made like a little barricade around Marta in the front. And then they were just like cheering her on, screaming for her. And, you know, afterwards we go backstage and Marta's all pissed, like really pissed. And Rojo's like, what the hell happened? And Marta's like, these motherfuckers, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, what? And he gets out. He's like, no, mom, and culeros. Like, you know, why are you guys treating them so bad with my homies and blah, 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 right? It was hilarious and like crazy, like like dodging water bottles and like, you know, like it was crazy. That's amazing. So J- yeah, JC Fandango, that was that was like ground zero for for like rock and espanol at that time. Like it's like when I talk about going yeah. over there and, and seeing the, how that scene worked. That's what I've always been curious because I assumed because I have a, I have a cousin in Mexico City and at that time I used to ask him about that I go so when the bands go over to Mexico City are they treated like this he's all no nah, I don't know he's like no man you guys are our brothers over here you know you can come to Mexico City you yep. know because they're playing yep. rock and stuff over there too and they actually the way he would tell yeah. me he's like we want you guys to to sing English when you guys come over here like th- that's yeah that's what totally because they want to hear what it, they want to hear they want to see people like themselves doing something different. And like they don't want to see the same shit. And when we went to this club, the the yeah. Foro Alicia, it was a punk rock club. It was like 
a ground zero punk rock club mm-hmm. in Mexico City. And we thought we were going to get eaten alive because of the experience with Maldita. But no, they were so like, like it was such a great, great vibe. Like it, we, we played so well that night because it was, it just felt so yeah. good. Yeah, no, man, I bet, I bet. Oh my gosh, I, I could, I could keep you on the phone for for hours and just pick your brain because I love this type of stuff. I want to focus on the thirty year celebration. Let me ask you this: like, when you look back at thirty years of Quetzal, looking back, like, what are the first things that that come to your mind about Quetzal and what you guys have accomplished? I mean, you're looking back at at three decades of music and activism and and lineup changes and you know and family life and relationships and everything that that implies, you know. You know, what are the things that mm-hmm. cross your mind? Woo. Well, I mean, for one, like we, we talked about the music scene that we come from, and I think art and the art and culture scene that we come from. And I think that's really important. And I think really paying homage to, you know, the generation that came before us, the punk scene, the Chicano punk scene in particular, and particularly the women in that scene, and how much they, they how generous they were with us to like all the culture bearers throughout our trajectory that have given us so much, you know, from, like I said, from Lencho to Ramon Gutierrez from Sonda Madera, Gilberto Gutierrez from Mono Blanco, este, Patricio Hidalgo from, he used to be with a group called Chuchumbe, um, and, and so many, many others to like different agents and promoters that, that like understood what we were trying to do and were like, oh, okay. So then, we'll have you play the concert, but why don't we do some community stuff too? Like, why don't we put you, why don't we stay, keep you here for a week and just do a series of community stuff, then you can do the concert at the end, right? And starting to see that, that possi- those possibilities emerge and, to, to, and, and the people that it took to, to actually manifest those things, right? Producers like, you know, John Avila, who's produced our first mm-hmm. album, also produced Die Cowboy Die, mm-hmm. uh, who was, is a mentor Were as you well. A Boingo Steve fan? Berlin from Boingo fan? Yeah. I was, yeah, I was. Yeah, sorry, sure. go ahead. Because <laughs> so, I'm a huge Boingo no, fan. No, I mean, yeah, it's like, like, oh man, for sure. first the, the first Chicano name you saw, like in band and in, in the age you saw, his name is Johnny Vatos Hernandez. This is my favorite band, bro. Like yeah. you know, we, yeah, we yeah, saw totally. ourselves in a little round faced <laughs> Chicano with the shaved head with the hair coming out. Anyway, yes, as you were saying, please the triangle, the triangle, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so those dudes, man, like they were they were mm-hmm. real, and then. You know, our, like I said, our mentors and teachers, but also I think of like the people that didn't make it, the people that, that not when I'm saying make it, I mean live. <laughs> people that, that have died along the way. You know, I mentioned that first band, Aslan, uh, the singer of that band, you know, he died really young at 21. And just, you know, thinking about all those different people or people that are on the streets now, you know, that, that we, we knew from those times, like Eddie Ayala. Uh, and many, so many others. And I think about those people and like how important their contributions were to my life and to my musical trajectory and, and what we shared, what we've, you know, what we shared together. And then I think of like my kid, I watching him move about the world now and watching him navigate music in a way that I'm just like, wow, okay. And other kids like, like Ramon Gutierrez's daughter. So Ramon Gutierrez is, He's the he's one of the dudes that has you know been a mentor and he's the leader of the group Son de Madera. But I don't know if you ever heard Son de Madera, but they're just a phenomenal group from Veracruz. And his daughter, her name is Lucia Gutierrez Rebolloso. Lucia is the first Mexican to ever be nominated and to win the Saravan International Vocal Competition. Oh, wow. 
she's a jazz vocalist, among other things. You can sing songs, she can sing all kinds of stuff. And she won. And so watching her grow up and my son grew up with her and like, you know, they, there's all these, this generation of kids that are coming out from these spaces of accompaniment that have had the resources and have had, you know, the benefit of what we all built. And now are, are you know, like, I can't help but to wonder what they're going to do with this like, and what they're going to build. Yeah. God, that's amazing. I love the things that you guys have accomplished. Looking back at those times when, yeah, when we were all young and, and just hungry to make all these things happen and really spread the word and everybody, anybody who would want to listen. And then once you put it out there, everybody just gravitates towards you. And even if it was just a couple people, eventually it turned into a lot of people and you started to hear your name a uh-huh. lot more. And I think it's because we discovered you over here through those travels to LA in a pre-internet era. You had to seek yep. it. You had, we all had to purposely seek you out to find out more about you. Yep. It wasn't just like, oh, I'll click. Yep. And if it resonates, it does, it doesn't. People have a very short attention span. Yep. But we just, we yep. saw people like you doing really well. So very excited for the show. Let me ask you, what do you have planned for that celebration? I know you're going to have some guests. You, what do you guys got going on? So we have the Pico Project's going to join us. And that's a group that um, we've collaborated with previously on a whole big project and concert uh, we did at the Ford Amphitheater. And then uh, there's another group called Le Palette Dembaya. They're uh, West African drummers and dancers, and they're going to join us. So we have this project called Fandango Bon, and I can send you videos on that too. And it's one of the other things that we've built. Again, like the question remains, like what are other ways in which we can land in community with music, right? And so we started to collaborate with Japanese communities and their old born practice which is the honoring of the ancestors during the summer and they circle they circle dance and there's music in the middle on this tower called the yaguda and so we saw that and we're like this is so similar to the fandango it's inverted but it's so similar and it's a participatory practice and like thousands of people flocked to these spaces to like to circle dance and honor the ancestors and then we have the fandango and then the, the west african practitioners have their they're dancing as well. So we started to bring those things together and say, well, look, like the political agenda here is to to create moments of convergence, to create, to be able to build with one another and to share the practices across communities, right? And, and make those connections and to bring those communities together into one space through the practices. And so we created this thing called Fandango Bon that happens every single year in the fall. And it is a two-day thing. The first day we do uh, an encuentro and we actually spend a day dialoguing and, and kind of like bringing up critical uh, issues maybe that we're dealing with and then also uh, trying to get to collective solutions and collective action on, on how we're going to actually, you know, move forward with this as communities. And then the second day is the Circle Dancing Festival. And so you have all these different groups. So the three the three initial groups and then others as well that come and they share their practices and we just take turns and everybody engages in each other's practices. And so you have these old Japanese ladies and old Mexican ladies doing these crazy African moves. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's incredible. And then you have like all these black people and and Mexican people doing, you know, this real like very slow and intentional obon dancing. And you have everybody zapateando and like there's all these things happening all at once. Uh, uh, There's um, folks that 
practice the type of Islam. They spin when they pray. They'll do a very slow version. It's called the Hadra, and it's a family, and they'll come, and then they'll they'll have everyone like slowly spinning, and like you feel like you're floating. It's incredible. You're like suspended for that moment. Like everything disappears. Sufi. Yeah. Sufi, Sufi, yes, Sufi, uh, or Sufi turning, and so things like that are happening, right? And then we we create new songs every year that have a participatory element, and we do them all together as the three ensembles, the three primary ensembles, and uh, and so like uh, one of the years it was this piece called "120,000 Stories," and it's about the the intern Japanese folks. Also, there are so many stories to be told from these different communities. And so some folks that were from the Tongva nation came up and told stories and we would play music and then we'd create this space for a story. And so like, it'd be like, they'd come up and they'd tell a story and then we'd move through the music again and then create a space again for the story. But we're still playing, but it's just like spacious, right? So stuff like that will happen. And like, there's all these different ways in which we sort of, you know, land in community with the music and the dance together. That's another thing is that, you know, more and more we're cultivating this space where music and dance are not two separate things, right? For our cultures, they're one thing and they're both meant to rearrange and transform our condition. I mean, it's a big celebration. This is 30 years. Is this your official 30 year celebration? Or are you? Yeah, no, this is going to be the one for LA. Yeah. Marta is actually working right now. Well, we just released a new video for one of the songs called La Guilla that was done by an old colleague and collaborator. Her name is Marisol Lidia Torres. I don't know if you ever heard of Mujeres de Maiz, mm-hmm. but she, she's one of the originators. Oh, yeah. She's one of the originators of Mujeres de Maiz. She was in Chiapas with us, like, and she's just a brilliant, brilliant artist. And so she did a stop motion video for us for La Guilla. And she makes the dolls and she makes the scene. Like, it's so, it's so really, really powerful. I just posted it today on Facebook. that there's also Marta is working on a, a Quetzal Cancionero and so it's like well we don't have our lyrics all in one place so she's like so I'm going to compile them and then she started asking colleagues so like either academics other artists poets community folks to write reflections on a particular piece mm-hmm. and then she is compiling all that and she's going to put it into a book it's going to have our it's lyrics and photos and you know flyers and stuff like yeah, you that gotta, you got to document everything you know let me ask you this artistically speaking and things you guys have accomplished over 30 years you know are there any particular groups that you see yourselves in there are groups that are kind of adopted the sonar ocho sound especially you know in la you got like yeah. las cafeteras who i'm sure you know saw you and say you know i i, I could see us doing that i'm mean, just like ozo motley spawned a lot of ozo motley's <laughs> And, uh, you know, these are the bands. First time I saw Fishbone, I wanted to be Fishbone, you know. Are there any groups out there that you see yourselves in? Yeah, I would say like the most direct, 
lineage is probably La Santa mm -hmm. Cecilia. They're younger than us, about, about 10 years younger. Excellent you know, group. we just did a show with them together where we were on stage together. Like it wasn't like they play, we play. It was like this set of musicians. And then here's this song. For this song, it's going to be this group. And for this song, it's going to be this group. And, and we did all these different arrangements. And uh, it was fucking so much fun. It was so much fun. And then imagine Mari and Marta oh, yeah. together singing. Just, just, that's just a whole other thing. Power, power. I had two different interviews set up with Luz Mendoza from Ilabamba, and both times mm -hmm. <laughs> it didn't work out. I had a, I had a okay. lot of questions for her because I'm a huge fan of her music. You know, have you guys crossed paths over the years? Because I hear a lot of similarities. You know what? Funny enough, we have not. We lived in the Pacific Northwest for, for a long time, for like five years. But yeah, like we've never crossed paths. I'm a fan, though. I'm definitely a fan. I love Ilabamba, and I love her. I love, I love what she does. I think she's she's really, really talented. and and special um and quirky i love quirky you know so yeah very, and that's very <laughs> chicano, very chicano man i mean she she represents that yeah. and she had her central valley ties like that's why i was so excited to talk to her because she has all yeah. these central valley terror drummers from fresno but yeah nothing's worked out <laughs> and the agents are, i'm so sorry i'm like you know she's just busy you know she's out there touring and stuff like living in guadalajara and you know assembling yeah. the band here in the state side and from all different places you know what a talent Luis, if you're listening get a hold of quetzal you guys do a show do do some sort of collaboration get up there and sing sing with martha and and uh, it'll be amazing oh, you know before you go my primo from here in bakersfield joseph julian gonzalez yeah oh yeah he he was a big yeah. fan too so he used to talk about you guys uh when i i haven't talked to him in a while he's i think he's back here living in bakersfield but he was a big mm -hmm. fan did you guys collaborate on anything for sure so joseph julian you know he was he was always the guy like for all of the movie and theater projects and like he was the excellent musician who who had like you know a handle on all that stuff and as funny enough i mentioned kiko our drummer kiko cornejo jr and kiko used to work for joseph julian for a while and then he gave the gig to another drummer of ours who's andy mendoza who followed up after kiko as our drummer and so the, both of them worked for joseph julian uh in his studio you know help helping him to do his many many projects that he was juggling at once the dude is just prolific you know he's he's bad he was one of the first guys that i knew i mean not mm -hmm. only for, but he was he was my, he's my first cousin but the the fact that he was sitting in and playing with the mariachis because that was it was kind of unheard of at the time like but like he was actually <laughs> seeking that out and then yeah. we did the pastorella yeah. and all that and then i didn't realize how much he had done until we started to spend more time yeah. with each other yep. yeah so yeah you you know man he's 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 really good he's really good yeah, yeah i'm bad. glad you guys did some bad stuff dude. together and the last one you know i know you're very deep into activism and things. you ever done any work with ufw or dolores Huerta? any yes like we've done like one-off like you know, for, for events. And funny enough, the ties to the UFW are through my parents uh, and my grandparents. So when Chavez was in Oxnard in his first organizing effort, my grandpa was part of that. He was working in the fields at the time. And I actually have a beautiful picture of, of from that time of Chavez and my grandpa. Well, I was born in Salinas. And so when we moved to Salinas, my dad was, and I'm just writing about this. It's so funny that we're talking about this, but my dad was escaping heroin addiction and at the same time trying to get his master's at UCSC and to keep the family afloat was working at Ali Sal High School as a teacher. And both of them at the same time, my parents were organizing with farm workers up in Salinas. So yeah, so there's all these connections and you know, always been a huge supporter in many different ways of the UFW, grew up with that understanding and with, you know, a value system that is, you know, that's deeply tied to to how the, the UFW built power with, you know, vulnerable people. And 
you know, there's a lot of valuable lessons in, in, in the way that that was all organized. And then there's the piece of it that is documented, but I think people don't realize how interconnected it was. And that is how music and teatro and, and all that were a part mm -hmm. of Teatro this. Campesino. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, to start with, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did the music for the Chunky documentary and, and like, you know, Chunky's, Chunky's ties to the UFW, you know, Augie as a part of Teatro Campesino, but also, you know, on his own. And his connections there, like it goes on and on. There's just like this, and there was that was the generational thing, right? That was that was the the movement of music was so embedded into what was happening. And I would say that's probably true for every generation, even if it is masked in industry, right? That it's still, and this is why there again that there's that the ceiling or this limit because a record executive told me directly, "You guys are right on the cusp. All you got to do is." leave your community behind and you'll be able to break through. And I was like, what? Oh, like, dude, do you know who you're talking to? Like, you just, you just said the wrong thing to the wrong person. So that's when we got off our record contract. We were like, fuck this. You know, we're never doing that. We'll never sacrifice our community ever, ever, ever for anything. And certainly there have been economic implications to that for us. Right. But that's not even that important in the long run. Like my dignity has no, no, price you retain your soul too yeah absolutely so so yeah so like you know the farm workers are are a part of the social fabric of what we do and the ufw in particular right the history of the ufw and dolores for sure as a as a woman i was there when alice wrote dolores alice bag wrote dolores Huerta street wow you know? yeah we're still blessed uh -huh. to have that was her. Her. you know yeah Amazing. but uh but this is i just want to say congratulations on 30 years thank you for being so generous and, and candid with with all this because i'm a not only am I'm, I'm a fellow musician and somebody who loves your music but i'm a music freak uh historian someone like you still out there going strong strong marriage out there with your wife making the music i mean how beautiful is that man the tough times and all you know <laughs> you got you gotta you gotta make yes. it happen and with your son yeah. That's, that's beautiful, man. Yep. I hope other people interview you to get all this information out of you and document it because people need to know these stories, man. I love this. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. You thank got you it, brother. So okay, man. Well, thank you so much. Uh, much love to you and the fam and the band. Thank you so much. All right. Likewise, care, my brother. Please. Okay. Thank you, Quetzal Flores, for being on the podcast. Another reminder, the band Quetzal will be having their big 30th anniversary celebration on August 19th 2023 at La Plaza de Cultura y Artes in downtown LA, beginning at 6 p.m. Visit the band's socials at Quetzal Music on Instagram for info or just put in a Google search to find the band and their music. Special thanks to Mariluz Gonzalez at Vesper Public Relations. Thanks for listening.
Thanks for listening to the Real Talk Podcast. If you'd like to catch Real Talk on Terrestrial Radio, you can catch the live broadcast every Friday from 10 a.m. to noon on Forge 103.9 FM in the Kern County area. You can also stream the show and podcast from Forge1039.com. And if that's not convenient enough, you can also follow and subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. Technology is amazing. Thanks again.